At one point, someone asked the Buddha to describe his teaching in brief. And he said, Nothing is worth clinging to. So what, what is, why is that? What, what does this mean? Why would that be a, a kind of a succinct summary of the Buddha's teaching? When we think about what clinging is, holding on to something, trying to stop something, basically. When we think about clinging in our experience, it, it, it usually means that there's something we, we want to kind of try to keep the way it is. It's like, this is good this way. <laughs> I think I'll keep it like this. Or we're clinging to some view or vision or idea of how we'd like it to be. And so we're trying to arrange our world to make it to fit that vision. So essentially, we are kind of working against the natural flow of reality by clinging. In in a way, I think of clinging as both born out of a sense of dissatisfaction. we, We don't like things the way they are, so we want to kind of arrange things to suit us. Or we want to hold up onto something, say, this, this, I'll take more of this, please. And that holding, that very holding on is acting against the natural tendency for things to fall away and fall apart in their ever unceasing flow of change. And so this clinging is both born out of a kind of a dissatisfaction with things as they are, and it results in a dissatisfaction. Maybe not initially, maybe not obviously to us initially. In fact, I think part of the reason why clinging is so tenacious for us, why we, you know, do this over and over again, we have these habits and patterns like, yep, okay, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to get this, I'm going to have this, and then everything's going to be okay. And when it starts to fall apart, well, then I'll get this plan so that I'll get this next thing, and then I'll be okay again. Part of the reason I think we have this kind of pattern is because when we do manage to control, to fix, to manipulate, to arrange things to be, even for just a moment, the way we'd like them to be, there is some kind of sense of, ah, I've figured it out. Even if just for a moment I figured it out. So there's a little bit of a sense of what feels like a satisfaction that comes when we, for a moment, things come into a, to an arrangement that we particularly feel satisfied with. So there's, a, there's a little bit of satisfaction that comes from that. But this kind of satisfaction is inherently not very long-lasting not ultimately terribly satisfying, because however we've arranged things, however we've held on to things or fixed things, it will fall apart. And so we're in this cycle, and we think that we'll, have, we'll get satisfaction by getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, 
manipulating the world to be the way we'd like it to be. And then we know that 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 will fall apart, and so then we try again. And we think that what happiness is, is, is to be able to arrange the world successively so that we get more and more moments of things we don't like and less and less moments of things we don't like. More and more moments of things we like and less and less moments of things we don't like. And we think that's happiness. We think that's basically as good as it gets for us. And so I think that's part of why this clinging, this pattern is so pervasive for us because we don't have the vision to see what an alternative would be. What would be another way to happiness? So the Buddha has a proposal for us that it's actually the letting go of the clinging that will lead to a deeper kind of happiness, a coming into an alignment with the way things are, a coming into alignment with the fact that things change, that there is this inherent quality of unsatisfactoriness to all experience. There's no experience that we can have that will ultimately satisfy us forever. There's that kind of inherent unsatisfactoriness to experience. So the Buddha suggests coming into alignment with these, letting go of the clinging. This is a, a kind of a deeper kind of happiness that is possible for us. But it takes a kind of a really fundamental shift of our worldview to get this, to understand what this really means. Although we can, I mean, the, 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 the term let go does appeal to us at times. It's kind of like, oh yeah, let go. You know, there, there can be a kind of a nice sense thinking about, oh, let go. Oh, yes, I'll let go. But sometimes it's not so easy to let go of habits and patterns that have built up and practiced. We've practiced these patterns of getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want for our whole lives. Starting from the moment that we're born, we practice these patterns. But they're not, they're not ingrained. They're not hardwired. They are, it is possible to change these patterns. It's not easy, and it does take this kind of fundamental shift of our worldview. And it takes energy, effort, courage to make this shift. So this is what I'd like to talk about this evening, energy and effort, what, how we engage with this practice. So these two qualities, energy and effort, are very intimately connected. They're very closely related. But they are slightly different, and I, I hope to be able to clarify the, the distinction between energy and effort. The, the definition of energy in the, the Buddhist texts, the Pali term is virya, and usually translated as energy, um, sometimes translated as zeal, kind of this, this kind of movement to, to engage. This is what this energy is. In its barest form, it's understood to be a neutral quality. 
It's the same quality that underlies engagement with cultivating wholesome qualities like concentration or self-discipline or kindness as it is um, a quality that would be associated with engaging in acts of aggression or violence. There's just this energetic movement of expression that comes when we act and engage. So it, from one side of it, of side of things, this this wirya, this quality of energy, is just a neutral quality. But in terms of our practice, there's some kind of specific associations with energy that help help us to head that energy in a skillful direction. In one of the Buddha's many lists, um, the quality of energy is found in a particular place in the list between um, wisdom and patience. And I think this is an interesting, it actually is pointing to an interesting teaching that in this particular list, um, it is kind of understood that each quality preceding the next supports the development, the cultivation of the next quality. And so in this case, wisdom supports the development of energy. So what is wisdom? Wisdom, if wisdom is kind of the ground out of which this energy that will support our practice grows, what is this wisdom? There's several different ways wisdom is described in the the Buddhist texts, the suttas, the words of the Buddha. I'll just talk about a couple of ways this evening to point to a couple of particular aspects I want to clarify around energy and effort. One of the ways that wisdom is defined is as understanding what is helpful, skillful, wholesome, with respect to moving towards happiness away from suffering. So that's understanding what's skillful in terms of um, letting go of suffering and, and understanding what is unskillful. So being very clear about what helps us and what doesn't help us in terms of this, this term suffering is kind of a, a broad term. The... Uh, quite a few of you who haven't sat many retreats. And so I want to just take a moment to describe this term that is usually translated as suffering, the term dukkha. And it's uh, often just translated as suffering, and, you know, that's a way that we speak about it. But, you know, when we use that term in English, it's a little bit intense, you know? We don't necessarily think, oh, I'm suffering, um, when we are a little bit frustrated about the, you know, the food that was offered tonight, you know, may not have suited your digestion. You know, it's not, it may not, it may not be so much a feeling of suffering. It's maybe just a little bit of frustration or something. And we don't normally think of that necessarily as, oh, I'm suffering. You know, I'm frustrated that they didn't have rice. They had something else. You know, we don't think of that as, as suffering, but it is this quality of dukkha 
It's this dukkha has a very broad range of meanings, and it can just mean a subtle sense of dissatisfaction. Just a subtle sense of things aren't quite right. The term itself is translating the, the, the term dukkha. It has the roots. The roots of that word are the first part, the do. The first part, the do part of the word, means something like bad. And the ka part refers to the center of the wheel, the center of a wheel, the space in the middle of a wheel. So basically the place where the, you know, the axle would go through. So if you have a bad, empty space in the middle of a wheel, what is your ride going to be like? You know, it, it, it may be that the, that the hole for the axle is too small, so there's a lot of rub. So it's, it's, a, it's got a lot of friction to it. Or maybe it's a little off-center, so it's got a kind of a, a wobbly feeling to it. Or maybe it's too loose so that, you know, the, the wheel falls off altogether and you crash and burn. So it's got this range, this term dukkha covers this range from just a feeling of just slightly off to major suffering. So this is the problem the Buddha was trying to solve. Is it possible to be free of this feeling that things are just off? all the time. It's more pervasive than we really recognize, actually, this feeling that, oh, if only I had a little more of that, if only I could get rid of a little more of that. Again, this pattern that we have around manipulating our environment kind of masks this sense of dissatisfaction that we have. So the, the skillful and unskillful this aspect of wisdom of skillful and unskillful are intimately connected with what supports us in finding a way out of this dissatisfaction, of this off feeling, of this suffering. The, another main definition of um, wisdom in the, in the Buddhist texts is the Four Noble Truths, understanding the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths aren't just, you know, kind of didactic truths meant to be put out there and believed. The Buddha, the Buddha suggested these Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the end of suffering, as things that we need to engage in. So this is where energy comes in. He didn't put these out there, just believe these. He said, engage with these. He associated an action with each of these truths. He said, we need to understand suffering. We need to let go of the cause of suffering. We need to realize for ourselves the ending of suffering. And we need to cultivate the path leading to the ending of suffering. So this is how wisdom and energy are intimately connected. This wisdom of the Buddha is not just a wisdom meant to be believed. It's meant to be engaged with. So the energy in our practice is this energy directed towards a specific purpose, the spiritual faculty of energy, the purpose of awakening. 
There's another definition of energy. Courage is sometimes uh, used as another translation for this term, wirya. And I looked up the definition of courage, you know, the English definition of courage. And we normal, I normally think of courage as, I don't know, bravery or something like that. But um, the definition I found, a couple different definitions that put together really to me describe what we do here. The definition of courage, the inner strength of heart to persevere in the face of difficulty. That is a lot of what we do here. So energy and effort are very um, connected. Um, You know, we need energy, in a sense, to make effort. This is our kind of normal way of thinking about energy, I think. You know, if I have energy, I can do things. If I have energy, I can go for a run. Once I go for a run, then I need to rest, get my energy to come back. So we kind of think of consuming energy when we make effort. So that's kind of our normal model, in a sense, about energy and effort, that we have energy and then we can make effort. That making effort uses up the energy and then we need to do something to replenish that energy. Take a rest, have some food, something like that. And we carry this model into our practice of what, how energy and effort are related. And so we feel like to make effort in the practice, we use up energy. And then when our energy is used up, we can't practice anymore. So that is one way that it is true that energy is needed to make effort. But there's also another teaching around this, which kind of turns the whole thing on its head. And that is that making effort produces energy. That when we make effort wisely, it produces a balanced kind of energy. So a balanced effort will produce a balanced energy. So this kind of, you know, turns things on its head. Is there a way that we can envision making effort such that energy isn't consumed, it's actually produced? One of the ways I understand how this works is that clinging this process of holding on, manipulating, changing, trying to arrange our world to be just the way we want it to be, that takes a lot of energy. And when in this practice, as we turn to attend to the clinging, and the clinging begins to let go, energy gets freed up. So I think that this is one way that this skillful, balanced effort produces energy. So I'd like to talk about effort, this wise effort, this balanced effort, from the perspective first of wise effort. There's a whole teaching that the Buddha offers about making effort in the practice. And, and this teaching about effort, right effort, wise effort, takes as its foundation this same place, the same kind of foundation of understanding what's skillful and unskillful, what's wholesome and unwholesome. So the simplest way of describing what's wholesome, what wholesome mind states are, 
is that they are those states that are based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Or to put it more positively, kindness, generosity, and wisdom. So states based in kindness, generosity, and wisdom will tend to lead us towards happiness and away from suffering. Unwholesome, unskillful states are those states based in greed, in aversion, in delusion. These are states like irritation, frustration, restlessness, boredom, laziness, smugness, wanting, pride. All of these states of mind that lead us to this dukkha, this off feeling. So this right effort is said to be, there's four kinds of right effort that the Buddha put out there. He said there's the effort that we need to make to avoid unwholesome states that have not yet come up in our minds. So avoid unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. To abandon or let go of unwholesome states that have come up in our minds. So abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. Then on the other side, the effort to cultivate wholesome states that have not yet come up, and the effort to maintain wholesome states that have arisen. And so you see that the whole understanding around wise effort, really we need to understand this, what are wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. So this can sound kind of obscure, you know, the effort to avoid unwholesome states that have not arisen, the effort to abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. So I'm going to go through each of these so that we can kind of get a sense of what it means to practice with each of these efforts, with each of these right efforts. So the first one, the effort to avoid unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. So what does that mean? How do we avoid an unwholesome state that's not here yet? Basically, this to me is kind of about um, looking at causes and conditions that land us in suffering, learning from our experience. So we see over uh, the course of looking at our experience that certain conditions, certain situations, we end up struggling, we end up suffering a lot. So the, the practice around this kind of right effort is to notice those conditions and learn how to kind of navigate to avoid the conditions that lead us into suffering. So we have to be careful with this teaching because even just the term avoiding can have um, a flavor of aversion to us. You know, that we can think of this means push something away you know, get averse to, you know, push something away that, um, so that I don't have to experience something, some kind of suffering. So that is not what's being talked about here. So for instance, just as an example, this, this, this term for avoiding can have some kind of subtle meanings to it. I mean, it can just be kind of obvious, you know, um, there's that, that, uh, you know, teaching, it's a kind of a, it's a, a biography in five chapters, an autobiography in five chapters. Some of you may, you may have heard this, you know. 
I walk down a street. There's a big hole in the street. I don't see it. I fall in. It takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 2. I walk down the street. There's a big hole in the street. I see it, and I fall in. It takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the street. There's a big hole in the, in the street. I see it. I think about avoiding it, but I fall in. I get out quickly. <laughs> Chapter 4. I walk down the street. There's a big hole in the street. I walk around the hole. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. Now, this is, this is the learning from experience. You know, we can learn to avoid the situations that land us in, in trouble. So sometimes it's that obvious. Other times, there's a little bit more subtlety to it. So for instance, you might have noticed, some of you may have noticed, that when you're in line for dinner, lunch, that there may be some comparing mind going on about what other people are doing, how much food they're taking, what they're putting on their plate, how they're putting it on their plate. So, you know, at first glance we might think that, okay, noticing this comparing mind, initially we might not even notice, we might not even see that this is suffering. So it's like walking down the street and just falling in the hole. You know, we just end up lost in comparing. And at some point, you know, 20 minutes later, it's like, oh yeah, mindfulness? What's that? (laughs) Other times, we actually do begin to see this comparing mind, and we actually begin to sense, oh, you know, this is not so helpful. So as we begin to see that these kind of states of mind are not so helpful, we might want to begin to avoid, find ways to avoid the situations that um, create them. And so at first glance, we might think, Okay, if standing in line watching people take food is causing this judgment, maybe what I do is wait. I sit in the hall for another 15 minutes and wait to go down until there's nobody in the line, and then I miss out on the judgment. That's one way of working with it. But you might want to check in as to whether that particular way of exploring this has a little bit of aversion to the comparing mind itself. Another way to explore this might be to really be mindful of what's happening for you in the line. So noticing where it is that this comparing comes out of. You know, so you see, I mean, just the first thing that's popping into my mind, you know, you see somebody taking a big scoop of something. What, do you, what happens there? I mean, maybe it immediately goes to, you know, they shouldn't do that. But... See if you can see what's happening there. You know, it might be something like a little bit of, there's not going to be enough for me. A little bit of fear that leads to some thinking, that leads to this judgment. So if we can, in this, begin to see, you know, it's not just the condition of standing in the line that's creating the suffering. It's kind of a more moment-to-moment process happening in our minds out of which this judgment is coming. So we can begin to um, use some tools of mindfulness to help ourselves not go down that path. So one way to explore this is to, um, you can just 
it's it's called guarding the sense doors. It's not it's not you know kind of putting blinders on, but using mindfulness to just really recognize what's happening in this moment. Seeing is happening. Seeing is happening in this moment. Actually, this is one tool that Joseph Goldstein offers a lot on his retreats. He says, when you go into the dining hall, if you see there's a lot of judgment happening, just as soon as you get in there, just start to notice seeing is happening. Seeing, seeing is happening. That's a kind of way of guarding that sense door from ending up kind of hooking into this chain of thinking that ends up proliferating into a pattern that leads to suffering. So that's another way to explore this notion of avoiding unwholesome states that have not arisen. I tried this for myself. I mean, I was finding myself judging in the dining room and I went in and I just started noting seeing, just using that. Seeing is happening. Seeing is happening. And it was amazing. You know, it was like it stopped there. It didn't leap into subsequent unwholesome states of mind. So the second kind of right effort is the effort to abandon, let go of unwholesome states that have arisen. So this means when we find ourselves caught in some kind of struggle, dissatisfaction, frustration, some sense of offness, this dukkha, when we find ourselves caught in that, we make the effort to let go of it. Now this effort of letting go might have an active feeling to it. It might have a sense of, oh yes, I see this isn't so helpful to be engaging in this pattern. And maybe I can let go of it. You know, we can kind of put it down a little bit. So some ways that we can engage with this kind of act of letting go, um, some tools that the Buddha offers for this act of letting go. One of the things he suggests is when we see ourselves caught in a pattern of unwholesome uh, thought or mind state, so if we find ourselves caught in anger or judging or comparing about a particular person, then see if we can replace the thoughts. Just actively use different thoughts in the mind. He actually suggests for fear, for anger, that the um, replacing the thoughts of fear and anger with thoughts of metta will be helpful. So this is one way that we can practice this letting go of unwholesome states. Now this can't be done with an idea or an attitude of aversion towards the unwholesome states. It really has to be a very kind of neutral. Okay, that's not so helpful. Let me try this. Can I let go of engaging in that thought pattern and try something else? Another um, way to work with this kind of actively letting go of something is to uh, redirect the attention. Um, to tar- I call this the not now practice. You know, that if you're finding yourself caught in some pattern that has a kind of an overwhelming quality, this happens to us a lot in meditation. You know, we find patterns and habits are so strong that sometimes they have much more momentum and strength than does our mindfulness. And so when we try to bring mindfulness to some of these very powerful patterns that we have, whether it's fear or anger or depression or loneliness, Sometimes when we try to bring mindfulness to those things, 
when the pattern is so strong, it can swamp the mindfulness. And it's just like the mindfulness just gets sucked into this black hole. You know, it's like, where was I? (laughs) We just get really completely lost. So if you know that about a particular pattern, it can be really helpful in seeing that pattern coming up. Okay, here's anger. Maybe I shouldn't even try to be mindful of this. I should turn my attention to something else in my experience. So I did this for quite a while around one particular pattern of anger. You know, just noticing when this person, it was one, it was one person I was angry at, and this particular anger just had a real hook to it. So every time this person came up in my mind, the anger started and it just like took off. So I began recognizing that just the moments when I was just starting to get angry and recognizing, okay, not a good idea to even put any kind of attention or energy in this at all. Don't try to be mindful of it. Just put my attention someplace else, into my feet. I tended to be walking when this would come up. So just feet on the ground, noticing the, the sensation, the contact. Kind of a not now to that anger. Not an aversive pushing away, but just a, I see it's not helpful to try to turn, I see you, I see that, it, that you've, got an, it's got an, you've got an energy, a strong energy in wanting to be seen. So for me, there was a kind of a, a need to acknowledge that strong pattern, that strong habit, with some kindness, and then redirecting the attention. So this is another way of letting go of unwholesome states. But often what's happening in our practice is that, um, you know, something's coming up. We can see it with mindfulness. It's not that it's dragging us down, but it just doesn't really feel like much is happening. You know, it's like, I remember at one, one retreat, this deep pattern of clinging was so clear to me. It was like, I knew I was holding on. I even kind of had a sense of what I was holding on to, but I had no clue how to let go. So I could see that. Just like, I'd let go if I could. I had, I, it, there was just not, it was not possible. In, in that time, it wasn't as if the, that feeling of suffering, that feeling of holding, that feeling of clinging, was drowning my mindfulness. It just really wasn't pleasant. It was a really unpleasant place to be. I really wanted to let go. But I couldn't let go. So in that case, a lot of what our practice is is just bringing mindfulness to the experience. One of the ways I think of mindfulness working, particularly in this kind of sense, this is kind of the let it be approach with mindfulness. That you know, as these difficult patterns and habits are playing themselves out, sometimes what mindfulness does, or the way mindfulness works, it's kind of like you know, we're driving a car 100 miles an hour down the freeway. And that's the momentum of whatever that pattern is, that anger or that frustration or that loneliness or that depression. It's the mind in that pattern traveling really fast. So there's, you know, the car traveling 100 miles an hour down the freeway. Often the way mindfulness functions is not by slamming on the brakes on this pattern, but by putting the car into neutral. You're going 100 miles an hour down the freeway, you put the car into neutral. The car doesn't come to a stop immediately. 
but it will come to a stop because you're no longer feeding it, you're no longer giving it gas. So it's very similar with the mindfulness practice that with this kind of balanced, kind attention, it's like disengaging the gears. It's taking the fuel out of the pattern so that it can come to a stop in its own time. And what seems to happen, at least in my experience, is that we disengage for a while, it's like then we see it, and then we engage again. And we're winding it up again. Oh, remember, and disengage, and then engage, and disengage. So this is, this is our practice. This is a lot of our practice, to notice when we're engaged and then when we're disengaged. And when we're disengaged, it does have tend to, we begin to sense a shift in our practice when there's that disengagement. We get the feeling, there's a, there's a, kind, of a, a kind of an insight shift in a way, that we get the feeling that, oh yeah, when I'm paying attention in this way, it's not increasing the suffering. In fact, it is, it is allowing that pattern to wind down. And we begin to appreciate that this is the kind of direction that leads us away from suffering, even though it's not immediate. The third kind of right effort is the effort to arouse wholesome mind states that have not yet arisen. And this is basically, you know, cultivating the wholesome, actively working at cultivating wholesome qualities. Now, a lot of our practice seems to be in this territory of letting go of difficulty. But as that's happening, as we're working to let go of difficulty, we are also cultivating a lot of beautiful qualities, mindfulness being one of them. One of my teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, said, mindfulness is the most wholesome mind state. So engaging with paying attention to anger or frustration or depression or loneliness or whatever your pattern is with mindfulness strengthens that capacity of mindfulness. It strengthens the capacity for interest and investigation. It strengthens the capacity for concentration. So as we are engaging, we are arousing, cultivating these states, wholesome states that have not yet arisen. The other piece of this cultivating wholesome states that have not yet arisen has to do with what we talked about on the first evening of working with the precepts. That essentially we can cultivate, we help to cultivate wholesome states by avoiding um, unwholesome actions, situations that oppose those qualities of mind. And so avoiding, refraining from lying cultivates honesty and truthfulness. Refraining from stealing cultivates contentment. Refraining from killing cultivates compassion. So that these, they they kind of go hand in hand, these two come together. I think Pat talked about this on the first night. We can also cultivate these positive qualities through positive practices. So, the quality of metta each evening at uh, the nine o'clock sitting, we are practicing active cultivation of that quality of the open heart, the kind heart. We can also uh, cultivate 
generosity through simple acts of, of, of kindness, simple acts of giving. So we can find our way to uh, practice, find practices, ways to cultivate these wholesome qualities. The fourth kind of right effort is the effort to sustain wholesome states that have arisen. And this one was confusing to me at first. I thought, why would you need to try to do that? I mean, wouldn't it just be what you do? What would happen anyway? If there's something beautiful happening, wouldn't it be natural for it to be sustaining itself? Well, when I started looking at my own mind, I found that actually no. In my mind, at least, you know, um, I would notice particular beautiful states of mind coming up, you know, calm. I was on a three-month course, and finally the mind really settled down. I'd been working with a lot of difficulty and pain in the body, and one sitting, the mind just like, oh, it just really calmed down. And I noticed it, oh, calm, it's calm. The very next thing that the mind wanted to do with it is like, oh, this is a really good time to pay attention to that pain in my back. So I wanted to, you know, not just notice the calm, I wanted to do something. And what did I choose to do? I choose to do something that would agitate the mind. Or another time I was really noticing a lot of joy come up. And the joy was very strong and almost felt kind of overwhelming. And there was a little bit of me that was like, oh, I can't handle this. It's like way too much joy. And so there's a feeling of kind of pushing it down or trying to suppress it. But some little wisdom thought went through and said, it's okay, it will pass. <laughs> and with that, I kind of let go. And it got really intense, like almost like a, you know, just a, a big, you know, geyser of joy. And then very quickly it settled into a much more calm kind of happiness. So just, you know, noticing these states themselves, you know, being willing to turn mindfulness to them. That has been my, my experience as one of the best ways to cultivate these wholesome states that have come up. Turn to mindfulness, turn to them with mindfulness. So these four kinds of right effort may seem like four different things. But we can also look at them as being four sides of a single process. If we just think about what happens to us, what's, what's happening, what's being cultivated, what's being let go of, as we turn with mindfulness to a difficult mind state, anger as we turn with mindfulness to that anger, it supports the letting go of that anger. So turning to pay attention to that anger as we turn to it, it supports that we, 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 you know, we're letting go a little bit around that engagement that I talked about. So it's, it's letting go of that state, that unwholesome state that has already arisen. Also bringing the mindfulness to that state is avoiding an escalation of that anger. So if the mindfulness hadn't, I mean, I've seen this in my own mind, you know, if I don't bring mindfulness to anger, it quickly gets worse and worse. When I bring mindfulness to it, it like keeps it at a certain level. 
And so bringing that mindfulness to it avoids the arising of more intense forms of that anger. So that's that first kind of, of wise effort. So bringing our mindfulness to this is kind of automatically bringing along these first two kinds of wise effort. And then it's also bringing along the cultivation of wholesome states. We're cultivating concentration. We're cultivating mindfulness. We're cultivating interest in exploring what's happening. We're cultivating and maintaining those states. And so really this, we don't, we don't, with mindfulness, when we're working with mindfulness, we can kind of just trust these um, processes of the right efforts to be unfolding. But it helps to be able to recognize when these wholesome states are being cultivated and when these unwholesome states are being released. It's a a simple thing to, to actually acknowledge that. And it's very powerful, particularly acknowledging the wholesome, acknowledging the beautiful states that are coming along as we practice. So another aspect of this teaching on energy and effort that the Buddha offers is around balancing the energy and balancing the effort. There's a fine line, essentially, um, in our meditation practice of energy that lands between being too relaxed and too tense. Kind of like we're, we're, we're navigating this very narrow pl- uh, place. Energy that's too relaxed can tend to land us into dullness, sleepiness. Energy that's too tight can land us into restlessness, agitation. The Buddha offered an analogy for this. He said, you know, it's kind of like tuning a stringed instrument. That when the string on the instrument is too loose, it's not going to make beautiful music. It's going to go kind of thud. When it's too tight, when you pluck the string, it may break. So the tension on that string needs to be just right. And he points to that, that kind of um, tuning. And it's kind of like looking at this tuning of the energy being a- akin to an art form because he's comparing it to the art of playing a musical instrument. And so really this tuning of our energy is the art of meditation. It changes continually the level of our energy, how much, how much energy we have, how much energy is available. Um, it's kind of, there's kind of this continual flow of changing situations. And so we need to kind of keep track of it, tune our effort to the level of energy. We can, we can balance our energy by making effort in a wise way. Because as I said before, balanced effort results in balanced energy. So the way that we make our effort in practice, the way that we engage, makes a big difference. So this really is the art of meditation. There's a kind of um, 
an exploration that we make around how much effort to put into being mindful. It actually, in a moment, in a split second, as others have pointed to on this retreat, um, for just a moment, it's not very hard to be mindful. Will was saying this last night, you know, pay attention to your sensation of your butt on the chair or cushion or bench. Notice the sensations of your hands. Notice the sensations of your lips touching. How hard is it? You know, in a moment, usually it's not very hard. What is challenging for us is to sustain it over time. And this, I think, is where our energy often gets out of balance. When we um, you know, think about, oh, I need to be mindful for the entire sitting. It's kind of like what we do in that moment when we sit down. It's like we're picking up the whole 45 minutes in this first moment and thinking, I need to bring in the energy, the effort to be mindful for this entire 45 minutes right in this split second. And that is overwhelming. We can't do it that way. But what we can do is be mindful just in this moment, and in this moment, and in this moment, over and over and over again. Just this kind of, this, the light effort that it took for you to notice each of those areas I pointed out, that's the level of effort that needs to be made. It just needs to be made moment after moment after moment without like projecting into the future thinking, oh, it's so many moments, I'm never going to be able to do it. Just the next moment and the next moment. There's a couple of tricks we can use around this to help us. Joseph Goldstein points to what he calls the secret teaching of breath meditation, which is all you need, the only amount of effort you need to make to pay attention to your breath is just enough effort to pay attention to half a breath. Can you pay attention to the in-breath? Takes about a second, second and a half. Usually we can sustain the attention for that long. And then at the end of that in-breath, you do it again for the out-breath. Make the amount of effort you need to sustain the attention for the out-breath kind of like pulling yourself along half breath at a time and the mind will wander and we recognize that we relax we come back and we just do it again just this gentle reminding over and over again we can do the same thing in the walking meditation i found at times when my mind is really scattered in walking I find it's helpful to like pick, pick something on the path, like, you know, three feet out, that little change in the grain of wood or that little spot on the carpet or that leaf on the pavement. Pick that spot and then can I be mindful until I get to that leaf? Two steps. Oh, I made it. <laughs> and then pick another spot and another one. And in this way, we can like pull ourselves along and, and sustain, begin to sustain this quality of light touch to the effort. 
really this this um this art of the effort has to do with learning how to um, make the appropriate amount of effort for the situation and it 's often much less than we think so one one um reminder I offer myself at times, particularly when I feel like I'm, you know, struggling, trying so hard to be present, is I ask myself, how little effort do I need to make right now in order to be mindful? It's actually quite a bit less than I've been making many times. I can let go of a lot of the effort that just for this moment, it doesn't take that much effort when the mind is dull and sleepy and drifting a lot, it's not that we need to force ourselves to be more mindful in a moment. It's that we need to remind ourselves more frequently to have that light touch of mindfulness. There's an analogy I, I'd like to offer. I know some of you have heard me offer this analogy before, but I'll offer it again anyway. It's, um, you know, riding a scooter. You know how those scooters those kids have, a little... You know, those narrow, I think they call them razors or something. They've got two wheels on them, a little flat bed, and you put one foot on the flat bed and then you tap your foot on the ground to get the momentum going. When you're at a standstill, you know, you have to tap the ground with the other foot pretty frequently to get the momentum going. But after a little while, you, you know, the momentum gets going and you don't have to tap so frequently anymore. You can, you know, ride for a little while. And then you start to notice, you get familiar with what it feels like as the scooter starts to wobble. And you know you need to put your foot down and tap again. So this is kind of the way the effort works in our practice. That initially, at, and at various times of the day when the energy is low, we need to remind ourselves frequently just a gentle reminder more frequently, like that tapping to get us going. Then when the, we, can get it, we begin to get a sense of what it feels like for that momentum of mindfulness to have some energy, to have some, some flow, some momentum. And when we get a sense of that mindfulness having some momentum, then we can back off of the level of energy, the level of effort we're putting in, and kind of just ride that wave of mindfulness until we start to get familiar with the wobbly feeling around mindfulness and begin to recognize, okay, I need to remind myself again, need to, you know, know, kind of do that tapping, remind myself, okay, just this moment again, just this moment. So this this is one of the ways to kind of tune the um, the effort. Looking at this frequency, this takes pract- patience. Takes a lot of patience. We need to learn to uh, kind of attune ourselves to the level of energy that's present get familiar with what that feels like. And to be patient with ourselves when the energy is low, just making kind of the best effort that you can given the circumstances. 
that was a relief for me at one point. I went into my teacher and said, I'm so exhausted, you know. How, how do I practice when I'm so exhausted like this? And he said, just make the best effort that you can given the circumstances. I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. Just, just try the best I can. It's like there's always going to be rhythms and change and uh, kind of cycles of our energy level. So when our energy is strong, we don't have to work so hard. We can kind of just notice what's going on. When the energy is low, we just make the best effort we can. It's, again, it's not that forceful kind of effort. It's just like, okay, mindful for this moment. Can I be mindful in this moment? And mindful in this moment. Just that really light touch. As much as you remember. And then you'll forget. And you'll wake up again. So just making the effort moment to moment. Conditions will change. And if you're making this balanced kind of effort, then this balanced energy will be the result. So one piece that I have to say here is that, you know, talking about effort and energy, often when we're making effort and directing our energy, there's some, you know, we have some, something in mind <laughs> we want to do with that. I want insight. I want freedom. I want to let go of this clinging. And the way that it works in this practice is, we, you know, we kind of do need to kind of head in a direction, but we, we can't demand particular results at particular times. That will just lead us into suffering. That expectation of, if I do this, kind of a bargain we'll make with our practice. If I work this hard for this sitting, then if I get this, then I'll be satisfied. That's a recipe for suffering. So we kind of have to kind of head ourselves in a direction, but not have an agenda about when or how the results come. This balanced effort creates a container, creates a skillful container from which insights can unfold. It's kind of like, you know, with a tree, a fruit tree. You know, we can't make the fruit on the tree ripen. But we can support the conditions that will allow the tree's natural process to result in ripe fruit. So we can support the conditions of the tree having the water, the sun, well, maybe not the sun, but (laughs) we can support the conditions of the tree having the nourishment, you know, taking care of the weeds, making sure that there's the good conditions for the tree to flourish in. And then we just have to settle back and allow the natural process of the tree to produce the ripe fruit. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. We can't make that happen, but we can create the conditions. And this balanced effort is a key part of the conditions to create the ground out of which insight will come. And now I'll close with a, um, a quote from a Sri Lankan 
monk who is a scholar and a practitioner. His name is Piyadasi Tara. And he wrote, We must, by our own resolute efforts, rise and make our way to the portals of liberty. And it is always in every moment in our power to do so. Neither are those portals portals locked and the key in the possession of someone else from whom it must be obtained by prayer or entreaty. That door is free of all bolts and bars, save those that we ourselves have made. So let's just sit in silence for a few moments. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.